0: Hello, listeners. This is the Criterion Cast, episode 186. Uh, We are here tonight on a summer evening to talk about Yazajiro Ozu's An Autumn Afternoon. Or are we here to savor the taste of mackerel? I guess it's all a matter of how you interpret it. Uh, We are uh, here. I'm David Blakesley, the host of tonight's podcast, along with Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor.
1: Hello, David. How are you? Uh,
0: Pretty good, old pal. We're back together again. (laughs) It feels like forever. Of course, we've been doing this for a while, right? Here we go. And we're also joined tonight by Matt Gasteyer. Uh, Matt, how are you doing this evening?
2: I'm doing great. I'm uh, excited to be on the the mainline cast here. What are are these supplements and uh, Blu-ray discs? I've never heard of such a thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're, we're getting into bonus features and <laughs> trailers and deluxe packaging. Uh, Very fancy, have, fancy pants yes, material. Yes, of course. We, we've we made the upgrade from the Eclipse Viewer, of course, where uh, some of you listeners may know that uh, Matt and Trevor and I had a three-part extended conversation about the films of late Ozu, that is Eclipse Series 3, a big box set, one of the best and most essential box sets and. Our collective opinions, uh, featuring uh, was it five films from the latter phase of Ozu's career, a couple of them in black and white, and three of them in color, and also kind of uh, you know kind of filling in those those last pivotal years of his career. But after we went through that, and we also threw in uh, Good Morning and Floating Weeds, two films that do have their own criterion standalone releases, uh, we kind of kind of end up doing a pretty good overview of, of Ozu's final phase. Uh, and we are here to wrap up that conversation with uh, maybe part four, you might want to consider it, uh, with a talk about his last film, An Autumn Afternoon. Uh, we're also very happy to have uh, the additional insights of Scott and I. Hello, Scott.
3: Hey, David. Good to be back.
0: Yes, indeed. We are kind of here to uh, you know include some of your perspectives. I know you had a chance to write about An Autumn Afternoon and Tokyo Story for the American Cinematex blog. They just recently did a screening of those two, you know, kind of pillars of Ozu's career, and you had a chance to make some nice comparisons between those two. Of course, Tokyo Story, the heralded masterpiece, and An Autumn Afternoon is pretty well up there as well in the esteem of Ozu aficionados here. So uh, good to have you on board, Scott. So we've got a pretty full cast tonight. We'll all be able to squeeze our comments in and work with each other and uh, see where the conversation leads. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the film. Um, we'd like to read the little blurb that Criterion puts on the back case, so I will go ahead and do the honors here. An Autumn Afternoon is the last film by Yazajiro Ozu. It's also his final masterpiece, a gently heartbreaking story about a man's dignified resignation to life's shifting currents and society's modernization. Though the widower Shuei, frequent Ozu leading man Chishu Ryu, has been living comfortably for years with his grown daughter, a series of events leads him to accept and encourage her marriage and departure from their home. As elegantly composed and achingly tender as any of the Japanese master's films, An Autumn Afternoon is one of cinema's fondest farewells. So I'm going to go ahead and take a wild guess that, Matt, if I kind of kick it over to you, uh, why don't you give us kind of a little summary? What do you think of that blurb maybe that, that Criterion offers? Is that a... Is that a fair summary of the film or is there even more to it than maybe what they allude to in that little paragraph? Well,
2: I would never hold them to, uh, explaining, uh, a film of kind of this significance in, in a major director's career like this, uh, in, in a few sentences on there <laughs> on the back of the case. But, um, I mean, I, th- I think it's an accurate representation of, uh, you know, the main character's journey through the movie and, uh, and of how the film fits into Ozu's career. Obviously, it is his last movie, but I also think, uh, you know, as as other people have have noted, it's a a fitting uh, capper on uh, this phase of his career. Um, the the stretch from late spring to an autumn afternoon, uh, where he's really examining the the course of families and uh society in post-war japan um from a kind of uh well tatami level perspective I sh- <laughs> i'll i'll go ahead and say um and and really just the evolving um currents of those of, of the push and pull between tradition and modernity um and so in that sense i think it's it's a, it's a nice capper on, on, uh, you know, what, what is really a a remarkable stretch of films. And I think it's enriched, um, by the, the movies that came before it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a, you know, it, it, it does kind of pick up on themes. Um, you know, some of the surface level comforts and pleasures of the film that I get are, are the uh, you know the appearance of another well-rounded cast of Ozu regulars, uh, each kind of playing slight variations on on the kind of characters we've seen them play before, and of course uh, some of these characters like Chishu Ryu, we've we've really seen him age over the course of of his adult life as he's been with Ozu for you know many of the you know fifty plus films that he made. In fact, the the great overwhelming majority um but you know you also see you know that some of that, that materialism coming through in in subtle ways maybe not quite as right in your face as it was in good morning with the kids going on strike over the tv but you've got you know the appearance of appliances you've got some uh you know coveting after material goods uh, the golf clubs the uh you know the refrigerator uh, even even the the baseball game on TV early on in the film. so you're right you're we're watching Japanese society evolve and and uh, you know the the tensions that that stirs up between the 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 traditional older generation and this is definitely a film uh even more pointedly about aging than uh, than what we saw even from films you know made several years earlier than this. Uh, what are some other thoughts people might have?
3: Um, Yeah, I mean, this wasn't a film that I took to immediately when I first saw it about a year or so ago, but kind of in letting it grow on me and then seeing it again in preparation for this podcast and that article you mentioned, it really kind of blew me away and overwhelmed me emotionally, which I think is striking because in a very sort of modern sense, it's kind of, at least of the ones I've seen, the least direct of Ozu's films, you know, there always comes a moment in one of those films where someone outright declares what's on their mind or what they want, you know, I, I, mom, we want a TV, you know, uh, dad, I want to marry this man. Dad, I don't want to marry this man. Uh, life is disappointing, isn't it? You know, there's all these kind of declarations of intent or purpose. And we don't really get that here. Nobody, except for the gourd when he's completely wasted, comes out and says what's really bothering them or what's really going on their lives. They're all kind of talking about, uh, things out of duty or, Things they want, materialistic things, as you mentioned, um, or all these kind of conversations that have nothing to do with the real center of the drama, which is kind of centered around, I guess, loneliness or fear of uh, death or isolation or making the wrong decision at the wrong time. Uh, but th- nobody really comes out and says it. And by complete coincidence, I happen to be on Flixwise this past weekend talking about uh, Antonio and his Clist, which is from the same year. And mm-hmm. I found an unexpected parallel between the two because that's also a film in which nobody ever says what they're really feeling or even what's really going on in their lives. They're all kind of obsessed with, you know, kind of surface-level aspects. And in that way, I think Ozu, a really striking way for a guy of his age who came from such a classical tradition, uh, is really fitting in with the modern, to the time modern, early 60s uh, cinema.
0: You're right. I think there is this alienation, to, to use that word. And, and, and whereas in Good Morning, the kind of the banality and the, you know, the small talk and the cliches that people kind of blather on about just to pass the time and to, to break the silence, there it's kind of the object of, of humor and, and it's kind of pointed out when the children have their protest and, and kind of accuse the adults of, of just always talking about nothing all that important. Uh, here you see that same thing, but it's really not played up for humorous effect. It, it is incredibly indirect and, and very subtle. And I guess that's that's the little joke I made. Maybe people don't understand the the Japanese title of this film is The Taste of Mackerel, or it's actually a taste of a particular type of mackerel, a certain fish that has a very bland but very subtle taste. And, that, and of course, there's no character who actually eats that fish in the film but Ozu wanted to create that sensation. He and his uh, fellow screenwriter, Kogo Noda, uh, wanted to convey a, a, an impression or, or make an emotional impact that really is, like, like I say, kind of low-key, but kind of gets you. And I agree, Scott, watching this movie a couple times, um, letting some of the, the charms and that those surface things kind of... Wear down, or or you sort of move through those to get to the heart of what's going on here, and I guess that's where I was kind of getting with that little blurb uh, inquiry there, the the packaging of the film and even the trailers on this uh, on this disc convey the sense of what a heartwarming, tender, affectionate story it is. But and there there's elements of that, but there's a really dark, dark kind of despair underneath it all as well. And I think this was Ozu's evolving sort of uh, aesthetic and and his his summation of of the significance or the relative insignificance of so many of life's supposedly key events. And so you do see a a progression uh, throughout the repetition and the repeated formulas of so many of these late era films of his. Yeah, I think Trevor. The, let's get you. Oh, well, mm-hmm. I just Go wanted
2: ahead. to say one thing about what Scott had said about about the kind of the declarations uh, that c- come frequently in Ozu's other films. Because I I totally agree with that the fact that you're not seeing those here, but I feel like Ozu is constantly playing with your expectations around that. The the melodrama of the movie is constantly being cut off at un, in unexpected moments. Um, I think the the sort of most obvious of those is in the finals, not to jump ahead too far, but in the, the, the final scene, uh, of the, the wedding scene where she, you know, gets down, uh, bends down before her father to sort of basically recreate the, the really moving scene in, in late spring. Um, and immediately, uh, Hirayama just cuts her off and says, I know, I know. Um, you know, so, uh it's almost like he's playing with uh the these previous big moments um throughout uh his films uh to set up your expectation of what watching an ozu movie is supposed to be and then subverting that expectation
0: yeah he but he's 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 definitely um counting on the fact that the people who are the most familiar with his films are going to get that you know and and uh I, you know i'm i'm trying to imagine what was the ozu film culture like back then. i mean he was popular he was you know well regarded the the trailers again to talk about those on this disc are are trailers of the film in process as it's being made so they're kind of building excitement by the fact that you know here comes the great ozu's latest movie much anticipated um and now of course we're watching it well-removed you know you know several decades past uh, his death and watching this film as his last one sort of almost anticipating it being a culminating statement here uh, of a great man's career a great artist uh, you know a, a real visionary and and a master of expression on this very low-key subtle level um, but you know it, it, it still requires a certain degree of, of, of focus and concentration especially in today's um, you know action and, and effects saturated cinema landscape you kind of got to be tuned in on some things and, and and I'm I'm glad that I've made this journey to kind of reach this point where yeah I can I can watch these films and let those little variations kind of have Ozu's intended impact, but it, but it is something you have to sort of cultivate and work yourself up to. So maybe that's a good cue to get Trevor in. I, I would take it, Trevor, this is your first uh, encounter with uh, An Autumn Afternoon, uh, kind of watching it in this uh, series here that we've been in?
1: It is. It was my first time. I've had the Blu-ray, I think, since it came out, but... You know my my quest to watch all of them in order from the <laughs> yes. beginning. <laughs> yes, of course. I had I had to wait until I got here, and I'm, I'm still missing a few because I had to leapfrog a couple. But, um, but yeah, this was my first time. So um, give us
0: give us your impressions. Say yeah, what do you think?
1: You know, it it was beautiful. Um, I, I'm listening to all of the very intelligent things you you are saying about the film, and trying to think of ways that I might respond to that. And they're certainly thought provoking. Uh, but my initial reaction to it was just how tender it is. and there is a darkness there, but there's something there's something really moving about the film that really got to me as well this time. I know it's lonely. I know that the characters are all kind of um, living a lonely existence. But there's something about the fact that they're 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 doing that together, um, <laughs> lonely together. Exactly. <laughs> yes, that I just really enjoyed. There's there's a sense here of because Ozu has so many characters. I mean, we do have the main father Chishi Rio's character, but there are so many other relationships going on, and he's always being pulled one way or the other by the by the variety of them you know should he get married again to someone really young should he marry someone who's not so young should he marry his daughter off should they just continue on together and you know um, keep things the way that they are all of that's going on and there are all kinds of examples as to why one might not be better than the other or might be better than the other but by showing so many portraits i just feel like he's saying you know none of this is easy it just is it's just this is how life is and there's a, a really beautiful sense of the passage of time in this one that I didn't get with the with many of the films that we've already watched. Um, I guess what I mean is these characters, we're catching them at a, at a specific moment. And as you said, David, they there isn't um, a sense here that the big events in life are the ones that are fulfilling. We're just seeing these characters live um, over this period. And it's the quiet moments. I mean, Ozu really puts in a rhythm of just daily life. He he lets his shots linger so we can see someone who's just finished talking to someone and is now alone at his desk, just working, reading over some documents. And he sits on it for, for a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we capture moments where um, people will be done with their conversations and they, they just continue doing whatever they're doing, whether they're practicing their golf swing or drinking something or, or just taking a, a sigh and it's various points of the day as well he shows them in the morning he shows them in the evening getting home from work he shows them at work he shows them uh, as they're relaxing with each other trying to have kind of a reunion or a party and he shows them alone at last and all of that just conveyed such a beautiful rhythm to, to life that that's my that was my big takeaway from an autumn afternoon. To you know, it, it really does feel like a beautiful culmination of of Ozu's work. And I know he didn't intend it to be, and I know that there are many other films that could work just as well if we were looking at them from that perspective. But this one does it uh, really well for me. It, there's a, a blandness. In it that really works with his idea of him being an old tofu maker, and showing that you know this is life, this is the blandness of life, and isn't it beautiful? And can be so delicious if you know how to how to look at it from the right perspective. Um, so I, I don't know. That's where I'm coming out of it right now, uh, pr- pretty fresh, and um and just uh, just marveling again. You know, I'm, I'm anxious to go back and see these things again because. I, I I can't wait to get some of the uh, some other of the riches out of them.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, this is, I mean, I, I think with with Matt and Scott and myself, we probably all watch this film multiple times. We kind of <laughs> plunge right into our analysis without really even giving a whole much of a of a recap. And and I guess I'll assume that most listeners have had some familiarity with the film but you know the and and the you know we've already talked about sort of the the repetition of the plot you know there's a uh, a widowed father he's got a daughter he's also got you know two other sons Uh, one of them married one of them younger and still living at home and presumably going to be at home for a while so it's not like he's going to be completely alone but You know, you you see very early on that the daughter is kind of the domestic servant of the family. She does all the, you know, the chores around the house and has everything sort of set up and ready for the guys to come in and do their thing. Um, But the, you know, Hirayama, the, you know, the Chishu Ryu character... Uh, you know, just as sort of assumed and taken for granted that his daughter's just going to be there indefinitely, even though he recognizes that, you know, his own secretary is kind of of that marrying age, and the secretary is the same age as his daughter, and so, you know, that this is where the idea is planted, and then we have the, the plot of the gourd, uh, this old uh, school teacher that uh, uh, this group of men uh, all went to school with, They've they've all grown up, they've survived the war, they've Done fairly well for themselves and in the business world, and they're they're all working seems seemingly, seemingly pretty cozy, casual jobs. You know, you, you mentioned Trevor. You see the men at work, and what you really see them doing is stamping papers and just sort of sitting passively at a desk, just looking at forms, and, oh, yeah, <laughs> and they really. It's not sexy. <laughs> no, no, and 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 they seem to be sort of just kind of playing out the string here. They're they're not making crucial decisions or big deals, or if they are, they're certainly not sweating the details or they're not in a kind of a cutthroat competitive business environment. That's not the impression you get. And when they hang out, they're in pretty regular, you know, working class areas, Uh, especially the Gord himself, this, this old professor, this man who taught these young men. Uh, you know much of what they've learned, and they find out kind of unexpectedly that he's kind of descended into kind of a deteriorated old age. He's now kind of a, a lowly noodle shop operator, and his his uh, old maid daughter is is living with him and taking care of him. And suddenly, Hirayama sort of sees this <laughs> ghost of uh, of his future kind of staring back at him, and says, "Well, I can't really do that to my daughter, and I don't really want to be that guy either." So you're right, you, you you see these alternative scenarios playing out before him. Uh, and he's he's torn, uh, and yet at the same time he's he's also very ambivalent. there's there's not a lot of visible angst revealing itself, but there's a lot of expression, there's a lot of drooping of the shoulders. Uh, there's a lot of alcohol being consumed. Yeah, they are they of... are straight up
2: alcoholics in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I know. mean, the, well, the, there's a lot of drinking that, yeah. in Ozu in Ozu films, uh, for sure, throughout his his films. But the, these
0: guys r- really like to put it down. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean the it, the bottles are always tipping beer, sake, Johnny Walker Red. <laughs> yeah, and they even I
2: mean there's there's kind of the the. The hint of 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 that in the younger generation as well. They start the conversation when when the son uh, sort of inquires about the the potential um, marriage partner. He asks the first thing he says is, "Do you drink much?" And he says, "Oh, oh no, two big bottles is is plenty for me."
3: <laughs> I re- really like the relationship between the three men as well. Um, it's rare, I think, that you see that kind of thing in a movie where it's not like, I mean, I guess there's ones that do it for like a comedic premise, like uh, the wild hogs or whatever that movie was called, where it's old guys (laughs) bumming around together, but in a, you know, fairly dramatic, uh, pleasant film, it's rare to see the relationship explored between three uh, men of their age. And especially three men of their age who don't really dwell that much on the past. You know, the only conversation about the war is between Uh, Chichirio and uh, one of his I guess lieutenants or privates who served under him in the war Uh, but these guys they don't really talk much about the past they only talk about their school days when they're with the Gord and they're mostly just focused on whatever's in front of them you know marrying off their daughters or in the one guy's case his hot new younger wife who he's obsessed with Um, you know they're very focused on what's in front of them and what they still have to live for which I found kind of touching in a quiet way
0: Oh yeah, the, the, the male bonding, the camaraderie is, is really uh, a delightful thing to revisit to experience. And they're
3: constantly the razzing they each other. That, they're like playing practical yeah. jokes.
0: <laughs> yeah, and the way that they use those jokes
2: in the in the movie to kind of establish the uh, you know, the the final twist that turns out not to be a twist at all, you know, mm-hmm. that he spreads out those two jokes just enough that you kind of forget about it when it comes around again and so you you know there's this again it's this moment of that seems like it's going to be melodramatic where he he realizes that you know you think the movie's going to end with him knowing that he w- waited too long and his yeah, daughter is going it, to right, end up right. being a old maid for the rest of
0: her life because um, of a sad twist of fate or an indecision, yeah. It's only, just only a... to
2: find it, um, you know, <laughs> just uh, flipped once more and and back on back on, uh, you know, where you least expect it. It kind of, um, you know, I just recently watched um, Jarmish's recent film, Patterson, and I, and he had talked about how in that movie he really wanted an uh, sort of anti drama, um, where you know every time you think there's going to be a new conflict coming. It's resolved and you move on to the next thing. And, uh, watching this movie again, kind of reminded me of that. And, you know, I mean, Jarmish, if, if not directly influenced by Ozu, certainly through Kurzmaki is his affection for Kurzmaki and other people, um, you know, has, has that in him. Um, and that's really present in this movie. It's just, there's, there's always constantly this sense of that something might you know, is going to be kind of the big dramatic moment, or at least sort of the developing conflict in the plot. And it's all kind of just, it all kind of fritters away, you know, whether it's the conflict between, uh, about whether she's going to get married or not, or just between, um, the older son and his wife about whether he's going to get to keep these golf clubs. It's like she storms out of the room and then all of a sudden she immediately comes right back in and it's completely resolved. And they go back
0: to, to sort of, their normal
2: domesticity
0: yeah you think about uh, some of the films we watched in the leto zoo with equinox flower and and some of the you know the failed marriages and the that you know the ch- child the daughter moving back in with the father because of the abuse she's experiencing from her husband yeah none, none of that really boils to the surface here there's just little small frictions little abrasions uh you know ordinary conflicts and there's a little flare-up of emotion but it, it simmers down pretty quickly and and life sort of just proceeds and I think you know you, you do see a shift in Ozu's narrative strategies here because he he is getting us into this this process of of life's changes rather than the punctuations that we typically think of when when a marriage uh, is consummated or a marriage breaks up or somebody dies or or some other big event happens here so yeah this is that's a very interesting thread to, to you know to consider as we're kind of you know processing this film but I think there is also just that this sense of nostalgia too this you know the 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 marching song and and you know you know this little chance encounter that you know uh, Hariyama has uh, in this little, little, new this little low-budget noodle shop where he just happens to run into a, a customer uh, who happened to serve on the same boat, actually reported to Hirayama when he was an officer, and that sort of opens up this whole new thread and, and this whole new uh, perspective for Hirayama to be reconnected with his own past, and, uh, and finds in, in Tori's bar this new little comfort zone. Uh, I mean, it's very interesting when you get to the end of the film that after the wedding, and after he's done hanging out with his pals, he goes back to Tori's for a, a, <laughs> a nightcap, uh, and and uh, it's, it's a very sad and poignant scene because he goes there looking for something and he sort of finds an echo of it, but the guy that he was maybe hoping to meet up with had already left, uh, but he still has that song going through his head after he finally returns home, reconnects with his family, and saunters upstairs to you know sit and reflect on wherever life goes from here so you know that that's kind of the the conclusion of the film and there's there's more to pick apart in that but it's yeah it's just these these themes of this kind of cycle around and and just kind of get into your head a little bit and perhaps we have our own parallels to you know those memories or those moments or those transitions that uh seem and feel like pretty big deals but then as life goes on it all kind of levels out and I think this is what's happening with Ozu uh, as he's like in his late 50s at this point.
1: Yeah just to pick up on that really quickly David um, because it's right in line with how I'm feeling about the movie it's a very porous movie with regards to time you get a, a strong sense of the past um and not just like because of flashbacks you know a lot of films are structured so that flashbacks tend to make you feel like everything was leading to this one moment you know we flashback so that we can see how everyone got into this this stage of life or to this this crime scene or whatever and if they look forward to the future it's to some major event in that direction but these these are characters who have been through a war um they've had spouses die They've already been married. They're already, you know, with, with his oldest son, they're already having marital spats, you know, where life is... They're kind of looking to the comforts, you know. We're getting somewhat prosperous. Uh, let's go golfing or let's go catch a, a baseball game. Um, you've got all of that kind of stuff going on, and the future things they're looking for are quite similar, but we really are. I like how you say it all kind of just flattens out and, um, and becomes... You know, I guess because of that, it feels so real to me because that's just kind of how life is. We have our ups and we have our downs. We have our very stressful moments. We have our very peaceful moments. We have our very exciting moments, and yet we still find ourselves, you know, eventually kind of in a in a in a medium space. I think a lot of us, hopefully, um, and and I think that's where this film places us is in that that kind of medium space. And yet, there's all that sense of um, of loneliness within all of that that I'm still trying to wrap my head around too, because all of that plays into into the him finding himself alone there at the end, um, and and I don't quite know why how they all kind of connect in my mind, but but they do.
0: <laughs> yeah, part of his um, his reverie, I think going back to Tory's bars that that woman the the bartender who reminds him of his wife you know and he's not one to wax emotional about mourning his his departed wife, but there's certainly an echo there and and as his own daughter has just gotten married and and he's now with his youngest son and you know that that's that's pretty much he he's he's consigned himself to a new future and you even wonder if there's a little bit of exhaustion with with his pals. Like, they've done this sitting around drinking thing and, and uh, with this new equation of his life. I don't know, man. I'm, I'm, I'm probably getting into a little bit of projecting beyond the end of the film, and that might be not at all really what Ozu's <laughs> wanting us to do. He's wanting us to be more in the moment here. So, yeah, I'm just thinking out loud at this moment.
3: Yeah, I mean whatever his plans end up being with his friends you know whether their relationship dissolves I I don't think it would because they've stuck together this Uh. long kind of thing but I mean there's clearly something he can't quite get from them that he probably misses about his wife and then to an extent he could see reflected in his daughter but now she's gone and so there's a a type of relationship that I think is absent in his life at the end of the movie um, that regardless of Whether or not he loses others, that still, that absence is still keenly felt. Um, Especially, I think, bringing back that hostess who looks like his wife um, towards the end of the movie. You know, he doesn't, you can really see how a lesser film would have him, like, in a drunken outburst, demand that she say a certain thing or, like, demand that she dance with him or, you know, some sort of more. Make a pass. Yeah, some sort of more intimate uh, Mm -hmm. context. But the way it plays out is he just watches her go about her business smiling, and that's kind of enough for him to dwell in that space. And that's a, re- a really nice touch.
1: Yeah, I like how you put that. It, it's, it's him watching her in the rhythm. He, when he goes there with his son, he actually says, you know, the son's like, I, I don't think she looks like mom at all. And he goes, well, no, she, she doesn't. If you look too closely, you have to kind of, you know, just Her jawline slightly... or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, I got the sense that you just have to catch her at the corner of your eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when it reminds him of that companionship or that that presence in his life. Whereas, yeah, if you look, you know, right at her, it doesn't look like her, but but just that presence there. No, that's
0: but interesting. She's smiling I, I, and she's yeah, obliging, see, right?
2: I didn't. I didn't. I kind of see it as just he was listening to this song and recalling his past. And she doesn't actually look like her at all. <laughs> um, you know that that he, in a way, that this bar is is him kind of recapturing, trying to recapture what he had in the past, and the, of course the irony of yeah. It. yeah, the and of course the irony of it is that he's not he he does he doesn't wish that they had won the war. He's not. He, he doesn't want to go back to fighting the war or anything like that it's that's the way that that you know symbolizes the fact that his you know time is time is over now and then it's these other people and, and in that final moment where he he leaves his friends and he goes to this bar just to have a quiet moment and reflect on what he's lost uh you know he's got two jokers sitting next to him talking about lo- you know losing the war over the over the music that he's listening to
0: yeah, They have more of that cynical take, right? Like, yeah, we, you know, here's the weather report and we're going to lose the battle, you know, and it's like, and he's not looking for that either. He, He's, he's not kind of, you know, skeptical, cynical, you know, ironic, you know, he's. He's just recognizing that, you know, that, that vitality of youth really is in the past and there's no recapturing it. You know, no matter how drunk you get or, 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 or what kind of, you know, pranks and jokes and laughs you might generate, uh, time has passed. And, and all he really has yet to do is play out the remainder of that string. And, uh, you know, and, and he's a man of, of habits. You know, he's, you know, his career is probably winding down towards retirement and he doesn't have the same kind of vigor and pep uh, physically that he once had yeah his options are dwindling and and I think Ozu's kind of you know whatever age of uh, or stage of life you are at um you know this is a preview of maybe what what lies ahead but there is a, still a lot of youth and vitality on display in the film and I think this is a, a, a you know uh, the supporting characters obviously Hiroyama is the man kind of perhaps who reflects Ozu's perspective the most vividly or most directly, but, you know, the younger people in this film and and the way that they are marketed, their kind of spotlight moments. Again, I, I go back to these trailers, which give me probably as close of a sense as as is attainable nowadays of what this film, how it might have impacted its original audience. But this is a very, a very attractive and very uh, charming cast. You know, there's a lot of yeah, uh, they're not quite cameos, but they're short scenes featuring very familiar faces. Um, I don't I'm not as well versed on the names as I probably should be, but I think Haruko Sugiyama is one of them. and she's she's a woman who often plays kind of the pestering nag in in a lot of films, like gossipy neighbor and and all of that. And she has one scene here. She's the uh, the gourd's daughter. And that's a pretty, pretty effective, powerful scene. And that's pretty much it for her. But she's the one who conveys that sense of, of, of loss and 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 despair of of the life that she's been kind of stuck in because of her dad's uh, you know unrelenting drunkenness and his, for whatever reason, you know, the lack of willingness for him to arrange a marriage for her, and and she's as stuck uh, and perhaps yeah maybe women in the audience or or more you know sensitive men might recognize yeah this is this is a pattern this is a way of life that uh, is not acceptable he's not quite up at the Mizuguchi level of you know putting women's anguish in this patriarchal society in front of his audience but he certainly taps into that and uh, i don't know who are some other supporting characters or some of the other side plots that uh, you know captured some of your interest
3: well, I do want to say in a general sense that I like the way that the supporting characters are used in, in terms of the dramatic arc of the film. Because this was one of my problems with it the first time that I realized uh, the second time around how canny it kind of is, is that so many of these like trivial problems, we had the golf clubs or... Uh, uh, I can't even think of another... Oh, the Gordon, to a certain extent, even. Um, there's these all these plots that receive so much attention while uh, the daughter receives almost none until the very end. Right, um, right. But right. it's a, mm-hmm. such a smart move, I realize, because it kind of mirrors the extent to which the guys in the family are taking her for granted and aren't really considering, you know, how she might feel about her eventual fate, even, you know, until the very last minute when they scramble to get this guy who they take it that she likes... Uh, But it's too late for that. And that scene where they have to tell her that it's not going to work out with this guy, it just becomes completely devastating because you realize how little, you know, you and the audience have been paying attention to her and how little the film has and how little the men have. And it's really, really smart move. And I, I do think that the supporting cast is plenty engaging along the way. You know, I never really like regretted spending time with the younger married couple because they're so amusing and charming kind of. Uh, fighty and flirty at the same time together, and how they discuss the golf oh, clubs, yeah. and then the conclusion where she's mm-hmm. just like, "Well, if you're getting the clubs, I'm getting a leather bag, and that's that." <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it's it's, it's very, very it's very cute, very winsome. I mean, they're they're a very attractive young couple. I mean, his. His physicality when he's swinging those golf clubs, he's got a pretty good stroke there, you know? And and so uh, there's there's definitely, you know, just pleasure in these little domestic scenes there. Uh, an interesting you know, maybe tidbit here is that the daughter, uh, the daughter who gets married, has actually got top billing in this film. And I guess she was apparently some kind of a box office, uh, you know, attraction at the time, but she's even you know, billed above Chishu Ryu. Uh, so that, that, again, may be... Um, attributable to the you know the popularity of her as a pop star a celebrity a, you know a young beautiful woman or whatever but her performance is again that that very subtle thing where she's she's smiling at one moment and casting her eyes down a slight tilt of the head and again you know if you're not really sort of focused in on on the effect of of these very small gestures you know, in other words, if you're kind of more of a typical modern filmmaker or film watcher, you, you're going to miss that stuff, or it's not going to maybe get you quite the same way until you start to realize, like you just said, Scott, that she's a very pivotal player in this whole scheme of of events, and yet we'd never get any of her interiority, and you know, Ozu is very deliberate in not letting us in on on that. And so it's really our conjecture that maybe fills in the blanks. Uh, but it's a statement about how, really, how little her her personal choice matters in all of this and how she very quickly has to process, not that she's cornered in a way that she feels threatened or you know, menaced by these men who are running her life, but it's just, this is what I have to do. And even though I wasn't really expecting it, even ten or fifteen minutes ago, now my life is about to change, and that's just how it's going to be. And you know, that's that—that's a lot to a lot to, to to ponder there, because her her whole destiny is kind of being rerouted. But in a way, Ozu is saying, "Yeah, that's just how life goes." And and um, whether she did or didn't get married, you know, what's the big difference? I mean, from his little bit more aged perspective i think he's downplaying the significance of these events even though a lot of us are going to say wow that that was a huge you know a huge pivot uh, in in the story of her life and it's not necessarily given the full registry of of impact that maybe it deserves
2: yeah i think there's two ways to look at her in this movie or being cast in this movie because she is she was uh, a, the top billing uh, star of the film. I think you can kind of look at, at it as Ozu saying, well, we're not going to meet this person very much. Uh, so sort of having an emotional connection to them, having it be a recognizable figure in Japanese cinema for the viewers that are going to show up at the theater will make that those scenes more impactful. Um, I think the more likely reason for it, though, is, again, Ozu's playfulness, the, the, the fact that you have this star uh, and somebody that the movie is supposed to revolve around, and yet the film does not revolve around her at all. And of course, I say playfulness ironically, because it is quite, um, it is quite profound how, just how seemingly unimportant, um, she is to the story that begins from the very first conversation with the potential of her getting married off uh you know and then ends with her having been married off um and yet we you know we meet her so little by the way she uh she is still married to uh masahiro shinoda um oh, has been okay. married to, That's a to him for trivia.
0: 50 years very good
1: well, i wonder I was if was just certain... looking well. oh, go ahead david
0: well, I'm just wondering if certain fans of hers might have felt a little disappointed oh, yeah, <laughs> that she was sure. under underutilized or, or maybe teased at more than anything I'm else in this film. Not
1: sure. I, I, looking at her filmography, and I know this is Wikipedia, she she really seemed to start her career at Shochiku in um, in 1960 when she had uh, or let's see 1960 playing her first role in a Kenosha film the River uh, Fuku. Fuki. <laughs> I don't know. Don't know that one. Um, and then uh, she was a, had a brief role as a reception desk woman in late autumn. She was in Harakiri, and then Autumn Afternoon. I, and it, there's nothing here that suggests that she was a superstar before that. So I I do think there might be a lot to what Matt's saying that you know you kind of have this unknown woman um, playing having lead billing, and it really only comes out in the end how just significant that is. I mean um but she, she definitely was a,
2: a she definitely was was a, a known figure uh when she was cast in this uh i've, maybe I've read that before some, that a, a, yeah i mean i've read before that right. they that they you know i mean and whether it was Shochiku sort of forcing their starlet upon ozu or what it was but um you know and, and that, that that's also why You know, Ozu had done a a couple of films outside of Shochiku, and uh, he had borrowed other uh, actors for his recent movies. And so that's why you see so many Ozu regulars in this movie. Uh, It wasn't because he knew he was going to pass away and he wanted to round up the gang. It was because Shochiku told him that he had to only use Shochiku people (laughs) in the movie. So... Um, that's why you you know you see all of those people even the even this in the small roles um but it it's nice to see them and it it lends those those bit parts a lot more weight
0: yeah and yeah. it's it's a good reminder that, that ozu was a commercial filmmaker working in a studio system where they had to write parts for all the different actors uh to have their moments so that's that's just a sort of a deeper level of Grappling with with the craft, I mean, Ozu was not like a Brissonian auteur who could, you know, make his low key movies uh, with his hand selected cast and and uh, just make it strictly on his terms. He he was he was making movies that were supposed to make money.
3: <laughs> I do find her performance pretty affecting, though. I will say, I mean, I think part of the reason it threw me at first is yeah. because you we tend to associate this role of the unmarried daughter with Sitsuka Hara, who's much more mm-hmm. emotive and. Uh, quite frankly, joyful present on screen, and,
0: uh, and 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 she's really focused on, and you you get that inferiority. Well, yeah. in, and in this actress films. is
3: just more kind of direct and uh, not quite cold in a way, but she is very focused on her character is very focused on the tasks at hand, and she doesn't really uh, seem to lend herself much to daydreaming until she almost seems caught off guard herself by the extent of her emotional involvement in uh, the man that she briefly. Uh, hoped and thought she might be getting married to Um, and so you get when you get that scene of her getting the disappointing news you can kind of tell that she's trying to figure out how she even feels and how to react in the situation Uh, and she ultimately goes with probably the mode that she's kind of learned to do which is just be pleasant and accepting about it and then retreat off and feel how she's going to feel in private and that's uh, it's a strong choice not only because it's an interesting character beat but it also lends to the relative strengths or perhaps weaknesses of a new actress who, you know, might not have as many resources available to show all that on screen, but you can do all that, you know, with a glance down, looking up at the right moment and then uh, the right lighting. And as she's off in a room by herself.
0: Yeah. David Bordwell's commentary talks a little bit about how Ozu was, was very sort of micromanagey with his actors about, Here's where you cast your eyes. Here's how you fold your hands. Here's how you, you know, hunch your shoulders or sit down or stand up or whatever. And and uh, you know, I I, I can imagine that some of this was very much Ozu's vision and direction of saying, "Here's what I want you to do." And uh, as again, Bordwell said, you know, the I think it's in one of the other supplements how you know Ozu would have his actors roll through the scene twenty or thirty times before. Producing his final take just to kind of get that groove established, uh, which is there's a, a staginess or an artificiality, but it, it does come across as feeling very genuine. I, I recall having some conversation along this line in our late Ozu Eclipse Viewer episodes where uh, yeah, I contrasted the Brysonian stance and posture with, with Ozu's, which to me feels much more naturalistic like real people having a conversation and of course it's a cross-culture i mean i'm assuming that this is how japanese people would would hang out and converse and talk with each other but it certainly feels like genuinely inhabited you know more so than a persona film where (laughs) you really do have models being positioned on camera and it's very effective in its own way but it's just different
3: yeah i mean when she's folding and ironing that laundry (laughs) that feels like something she's doing Mm -hmm. every single day and she has a very definite rhythm to it
2: there's a i i did want to there's a great anecdote about um, uh, ozu directing actors i think it's in um i lived but the documentary that's on uh, Tokyo story, the Tokyo story set. Um, uh, there was he was directing a young actress uh, that he had not worked with before in a scene where she was supposed to be drinking tea, and he kept directing her precisely how to raise the tea from the plate to, uh, to her mouth to take a sip of tea and then say the line. And he kept doing it over and over again. And by the 50th or 60th take, or however long it was, she said, why, why do, why does it matter whether I say the line and drink the tea or drink the tea and say the line? Why do we have to keep doing this over and over again? And he said, because you are not a good actress.
0: (laughs) Wow. Well, and, and you know, again, he's he's the old master. He he knows of which he speaks, and well,
2: uh, it is well, funny. I, I mean, they, he, all of yeah, the actors yeah. are just uh, whenever they talk about him, they're just terrified. You know, <laughs> to be to be discussing, uh, even to uh, you know, talking about the they're, they're, they have this kind of post traumatic stress about working with him, and I think half of that comes from just how precise and exacting he is, and I think the other half yeah. of it comes from their sort of uh you know awe in how effectively he's able to communicate on screen what he wants to get across
0: well, yes his his just his virtual soul his mastery of you know the way he's I mean he's personally directing the shots he's his eye is on the viewfinder and every element of the composition is right where he wants it and so you're 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 in the presence of somebody who is you know, completely in charge, highly accomplished. And, you know, for a lot of these younger actors in particular, uh, you know, they recognize that they're, you know, they're following in the tradition of greats like Setsuko Hara, Shishu Ryu. I think Ozu even didn't consider him a particularly good actor, but he was very excellently suited for how Ozu wanted to use him and I, I, I know Chishu Ryu did other films outside of Ozu's but you, you see him and you, you just automatically think of, of what he accomplished and how he was sort of the face and voice of Ozu his, his, his alter ego or doppelganger almost of, of where Ozu as a human being might be positioned in any of his movies Now not always but I think there's definitely a, a, a correspondence there uh, that you know, is certainly worth contemplating, and, and probably has some validity to it. Well,
3: he's so good at filling the space. I mean, you could direct him to do any sort of action, and he would find a way to make it interesting. Or he could just sit there, and the way he sighs is kind of mm, noise that he his resource in every single film is so mesmerizing. I mean, even people who have never seen an Ozu film, I'll show them Late Spring or something, and they'll automatically attach onto his little gestures. That are so yeah. ideally suited to
0: Ozu's cinema. Yeah, makes, makes...
1: yeah. I I hadn't I hadn't looked at an autumn afternoon at all before I sat down and watched it, and I was very delighted that he was front and center, uh, just yeah. a very comforting presence.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and of course, I guess in some ways, the absence of Setsuko Hara is is a little bit conspicuous with it being his last film now. Uh, the end of summer his penultimate film the one that ends you know certainly with with some people's regard a little bit too on the nose with the the images of death with the crows on the tombstones and the smoke from the crematorium and and all of that I mean to me I I really still think very highly of that film I really like the the smorgasbord it's another you know all-star cast with all kinds of familiar faces and a much more complex plot. I, I think an autumn afternoon is is certainly much tidier. It's a more concise story, even though it does have interesting side characters. You know, you compare this one to the end of summer, which is kind of just all over the place with all kinds of different things going on. Uh, the, the focus and the efficiency uh, and the simplicity of an autumn afternoon, you know, makes it, you know, uh, yeah, a suitable and, and very effective final statement. Um, I've got something I could read, actually. I, I got a book, um, Ozu's Anti-Cinema, by Kiju Yoshida, who went on to become a pretty prominent uh, you know, Japanese new wave filmmaker himself. He had some really interesting things to say about An Autumn Afternoon, and this this book has gotten some criticism for being a little bit psychoanalytical of Ozu, and the author kind of Declaring a lot of Ozu's intentions, but I, he didn't actually know Ozu. He he spent a considerable amount of time with Ozu during the last year of his life. After you know, writing even some critical reviews of some of Ozu's later films, but he had some some pretty cool stuff to say about an autumn afternoon. So maybe I'll just share a little passage from this book here. Um, again, Ozu's anti-cinema, published by. Uh, the Center for Japanese Studies at the University of Michigan. Uh, my son's alma mater, so rah-rah go blue. Uh, anyways, Yoshida says, In an autumn afternoon, Ozu-san nostalgically revisited and reminisced about all the components of his films without knowing that this film would be his last. If there is a conspicuous difference in this film, it is the fact that Ozu-san did not regard aging as sacred. Yet, he more playfully and sarcastically depicted all the characters in the film as banal, banal, and worldly-minded. Ozu-san made elderly fathers the leading characters in many of his films. However, Ozu-san had never portrayed them as banal and passive as they were in An Autumn Afternoon. There is no such performance like a father pretending to get remarried only for the sake of his daughter as in Late Spring. There is no possibility of incest in the relationship between the father and his daughter in An Autumn Afternoon. In the latter film, the daughter is also depicted as banal and passive. She does not realize that she is in love with a man she knows. When she realizes and speaks out, it is too late. She learns that he is already engaged. Early Summer has a similar story, but the daughter in his film can eventually marry the man she loves. In other words, in Early Summer, the heroine has an exclusively sacred but melodramatic position in order to realize a happy ending by way of contrast in an autumn afternoon the daughter conducts a banal and mediocre act like agreeing to meet someone at a marriage arrangement and she marries him as if nothing had happened before so there's just a few paragraphs but he goes on at, at length and and just has some i think some pretty you know insightful observations and i think it's you know his views kind of shaped some of my own about Ozu is kind of leveling out kind of downplaying the the magnitude of these you know otherwise you know conventionally regarded major you know tectonic events that take place in in a person's life um, you know I don't know any thoughts that those those the paragraphs uh, stirred up or any other thoughts we want to just talk about this as a release as a as a final statement of ozu as a kind of a culmination of a life in a in a you know, artistic body of work
1: well oh, no. I mean, I on think that it's... note of passivity oh I, I'm just gonna say on that note of passivity it's interesting because I think this is such a beautiful film and yet we often hear that you know it can't be interesting if the characters are passive but I think we've got a good situation here where it certainly can be
3: well, this is getting a whole other ball of worms, but I, I always say, you know, most people in their lives are pretty passive. You know,
1: how many of us are really
3: like oh, yeah. charting new horizons, uh, you know, in our lives? Most of the time <laughs> yeah. we take the opportunities that are presented to us and we go, yeah, okay, sure. Um, so in that level, I think Ozu's films are very reflective and I think that's why they stayed as enduringly popular. I was just going to say that it was kind of inevitable that Ozu would end his career almost randomly for as uh, fast as he worked. You know, he turned out a film every year or two for most of his career, uh, and it's just kind of great happenstance that it ended on something that, in some ways, summed him up and also looked towards the future so well.
0: Well, yeah, and this this movie in the Japanese is named after a a a fish, a, a fish that you eat. The taste of mackerel. And his next movie that he had planned is called Radishes and Carrots. So he was moving out of the seasons and into (laughs) edibles or something as his as his new title theme Uh, but we we are very sadly deprived of what his uh his work might have been uh elsewhere in in the book that i was uh, quoting by yoshida uh, ozu's mother lived into her late 80s and uh of course he lived a very comfortable life he was affluent and uh you know, did not really have a whole lot of drama. I mean, what he did was make movies, and, of course, he, he drank a lot, and I think that probably had something to do with his relatively early passing. But in the, uh, you know, the winter, early winter of 1963, uh, he became became ill with cancer, and that basically took up the rest of that year until he finally passed away in December of that year on his 60th birthday. Uh, so he was still planning work. I I don't know if that script has been fully preserved it, or it if was, anybody. It ever... was
2: actually made into yeah. a movie. Uh, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, the, Let's talk about that. A little I don't bit. know if
0: it was the year
2: after or the the, the next year, um, but uh, it, it's uh, very difficult to see at least in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. And it, based on everything that I've read about it, it it sounds very different from. Uh, you know, the, based on their, the notes or I guess radishes and carrots refers to like a troop of actors. Um, Okay. So it's not about eating the radishes and
0: carrots. No, no.
2: Well, in the same way that taste of mackerel or flavor of green tea over rice, uh, you know, is not, um, although there is green tea over rice and flavor
0: of green tea over rice. So, um, well, and radishes and carrots have a certain flavor to them. And I would imagine it's not about eating those actual vegetables but it's no. it's a sensation that he's trying to conjure up so this is more like floating weeds as actors and
2: yeah and kind of and okay. I, gotcha. okay. I guess it, it i mean based on the summary that's of the actual movie that was produced that i've seen online it does not sound like an you know anything that you would expect to see coming from ozu um mm-hmm. there's uh embezzlement uh and uh Sort of like, I mean, there's family, but it's not, um, you know, it's it's not not uh, the domestic. Yeah, but Chishu Ryu table. is the is the lead in the film. Um, okay, so okay. Yeah, but it's it's just not you know available uh, in the U.S. in any way. Um, I think uh, I think I had looked it up on Letterboxd uh, before this, um, and it's it's been
0: watched by three people who I'm sure marked it errantly. Mm. So. <laughs> Or, or really searched it out. I mean, I'm, I'm now, I'm really fascinated to figure out. Do you know anything about who directed it? I guess. Yeah, it's directed
2: maybe, oh. by uh, Shibuya.
0: I, I don't know okay. a lot about
2: him. Um, okay. It's, uh, it was marketed as a uh, tribute to Ozu.
0: Um, sure. But well, it would be appropriate that you know his last script or his last project brought to life, just like we've seen that happen with. Well, you know, you think about like AI. How right. Steven Spielberg finished up Kubrick's final final uh, planned project there mm-hmm.
2: yeah and I, I think but i mean i mean the the they were in the very early stages of their script sure. writing when he passed so i was Koganoda
0: noda involved you know uh,
2: i i don't know yeah i don't know if he continued okay. to work on it um they they credited the movie to ozu and noda um in the writing okay so yeah. um but yeah i mean i i i think it would have obviously you know i would have love to have another 30 years of ozu films um yeah. but i think it would have i think it it would be particularly interesting because and and certainly end of summer um and late autumn uh as well i think would serve as proper endings i think floating weeds and equinox flower would have been a little odder um yeah but i think this this movie just so perfectly sums up uh this phase of his career particularly because i think um the movie it, it's most similar to structurally in a way is uh early spring because it's got all of it it's it's like a um it's like daughters being married off at every stage that daughters could be married off at or you know the any every potential combination of of that uh represented as the main character moves through these options um and so it, it does feel like a summing up of this uh, of this um, kind of major thread of uh, Ozu's films uh, over the last uh, fifteen years. Um, and the the other the other thing I wanted to say about an autumn afternoon, just before we move to the disc or anything, um, is that uh, this I think the subtlety is again kind of counterpointed by uh, just how. Uh, vivid this film is. I mean, the, the Technicolor here, uh, it's not Technicolor, it's uh, Agfa, but um, the, the, col- the color that he uses here is just almost more traditional uh, for the for the time. Um, he really goes all out with it. Um, and, you know, previously he had kind of poo-pooed this kind of uh, throwing all sorts of colors at you. But in particular, the scenes in the bar, uh, that we transition into, um, after the baseball game, uh, where the three friends are sitting, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. has, I mean, every conceivable cover color on the table. Uh, and he, you know, each time that we go there, there's a new rose or a new flower in the vase behind them. Um, and you know, he, he's really going all out uh from that perspective and with the music as well to a certain degree. I mean he's really yeah, playing the music's definitely worth talking about. Yeah.
0: It's a very interesting soundtrack.
2: Yeah, so it, it just it almost seems like in know in sort of technical terms this is uh, you know, Ozu
0: on steroids. Uh <laughs> kind of his master class, yeah. You're right. I mean this is this is a film, especially if you've watched it a, a time or two. Watch it without the subtitles. Just look at the foreground. Look at that stuff that's happening at the bottom of the screen. Get the words out of the way and just marvel at how he puts each shot, practically each single shot of the film, especially when there's objects between the camera and the characters, just how how they dance around and, and how the colors play off of each other and how the shadows recede into the backs of the rooms or what's happening in those window spaces behind the the, the, the dialogue up front there it's just it's it's a beautiful sensory experience and again with the music too sometimes there's a a real discord between the jolly upbeat music and this kind of somber you know slightly devastating conversation that's going on and and again there's commentary about how ozu really almost sort of shrugged off the congruence between the feelings of the music and the action on the screen he, he considered music kind of like the weather you just sort of have to you know it might be rainy it might be sunny it's just it is what it is but but life proceeds through it so you sort of see some of that that zen uh you know detachment that kind of you know taoist let it just let it go let it flow um uh, playing itself out here and how the film is put together but it, it is really quite beautiful to just uh... and the, the geometry obviously he's pretty well known for using frames within frames and, and the, the Japanese architecture and the structure of the rooms and the you know the slats and the squares and the right angles um, play very very conveniently into this scheme but it's just it's just marvelous to see how he puts it all together um, watch it even without the sound, watch it like a silent movie and just let the visuals kind of, uh, you know, dazzle the eye in their own, you know, very, you know, very subtle, very soft-spoken way, but it's it's quite audacious when you recognize just how structured everything really is. Yeah, and the pillow shots
2: here are also very interesting too, you know, they're, he's kind of taking them uh, and playing with expectations a little bit, you know, even the opening shots, how the smoke follows you through all of the pillow shots and then into yep, the yep. first sort of introduction to Chishu Ryu's character that that's very unusual for usually they're sort of these non-connected, you know, maybe they're establishing the area or the tone of the of the film. and then you go and then, you you know, it's a sharp cut to uh, the the action starting. And here we, we follow them and even in the hallway we see the reflection of the smoke moving through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the the sort of wonderful set setup of the expectation that this guy has has decided not to go with his friend with his friends drinking, and he's going to go to the ball game because we're actually at the ball game, and he's showing these lights to set up the transition, and we expect to be down on the field with him any minute now and then all of a sudden we're watching the right. game on tv at the bar <laughs> in, in
0: black and white yeah light. and they're not even watching it
2: they're, they're in another right, right. room it's just background
0: <laughs> it's there. yeah it's yeah very 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 witty and, and again you just sort of chuckle at Ozu's. Uh, I, would, I would imagine he took some satisfaction in in pulling these own little stunts just like the character's well it's delightful other. i think it's what
2: what yeah, trevor is yeah. feeling even subconsciously um you know i'm sure there's plenty of these things that you you notice on a first viewing and i i, I had that same feeling uh the first time and but you know even if you if it takes you a few viewings to notice these things it, you're you're still feeling it you know you feel that the soy sauce bottle dancing back and forth across the screen oh, yeah. as you're flipping um, and I
0: think that that's really yeah the beer the Sapporo bottle stays where it is but everything else yeah. is moving around yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty funny. All right, well, we'll probably get to the point of just kind of summarizing this as a disc. It is a uh, fairly light on the supplements. It does got kind of, a it's kind of an interesting little time capsule of a program from French TV in 1978 where it feels like the cinemafil cinephiles of France are just discovering ozu in the late 70s even though he's had a little bit of a breakthrough in the earlier decade part of the decade in england and the usa uh anybody have a chance to take that in or draw any particular impressions from that it doesn't sound like it well i i enjoyed it it's it's only about a 10 or 15 minute clip and you, but you're sort of seeing Ozu already in retrospect from a late seventies perspective, so you know, kind of some interesting little uh, you know tidbits of insight there. Uh, you know, people are kind of grappling with uh, their discovery of this of this genius who had somehow slipped past everybody's attention, primarily because his films just were not distributed in the West, other than a very few rare showings. But the the main attraction is the David Bordwell commentary. I've already dropped a few references to it. Uh, anybody else have a chance to to check that out or have any comments to say about it?
2: I listened to it. Um yeah. Yeah. I I mean it it's great. I've always sort of appreciated um Boardwell on Ozu a, a little bit more than than Richie on Ozu. Um mm-hmm. and uh and so, you know, this was kind of a uh um a companion piece to his, yeah, his uh, yeah. to, to his book. Um, uh, you know, much less technical, obviously. Um, but still very rich. Um, it was kind of an interesting, I think, commentary for Ozu's last movie because, you know, you ostensibly have watched some Ozu before you get to it. Um, and yet he's kind of breaking down the sort of basic elements of Ozu's uh, structure and, um, and cinematic grammar. Um, but uh, in a way that I kind of would love to hear him do for late spring, more so mm. than for this film. Um, mm. and, and maybe a little bit more about the, 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 the sort of thematic elements of this movie, I think would, would, would have been fascinating. Um, but every, I mean, it's packed with detail and observations and, you know, it was an easy listen for sure.
0: Yeah, it's, it's definitely a solid piece there. And it does get me to reflect that, you know, there's still not a ton of Ozu on Blu-ray. We've got Tokyo Story, we've got Late Spring, Good Morning, of course, is the most recent release. Um, so this may be, uh, probably for a lot of viewers, this might be maybe their first or second Ozu film, especially if they're, newer and and you know kind of more blu-ray focused in their collecting or or even their viewing so uh you know what do you think about this is is this a a suitable place to begin one's acquaintance with those zoo or do you think it's i mean i will always want to say go back and take the journey from as close to the beginning as as you can stand you know uh, whether it's with the silence on up or if you go back to the, the late spring and do the post-war era from there um uh, I don't think you can go wrong by watching this if this is your, you know, you know, first, second, or third Ozu film. But I think you may not get the full appreciation or impact from it until you've, you know, kind of rounded out the journey and and uh, maybe then can appreciate how it is a, a a fitting capstone to a to a great career.
3: I also think so. because of like what we talked about with its more subtle uh, emotional cues and stuff, I think it helps to. Know kind of have some grounding in how Ozu works dramatically in order to notice that kind of stuff. Um, not to say that one couldn't possibly appreciate it in the first viewing or even right. get it dampened appreciation of it, but I just think even getting the the gist of what the movie is going for would be tougher for a first time viewer. But I'd be happy to hear otherwise,
0: yeah. Yeah, well, I think maybe we can start winding down the conversation. So I do, I do invite listeners if you want to interact with us. Uh, We've got our Facebook uh, sites. We've got the Twitter, and, and we can all banter with this uh, online in various ways. So, if you've got thoughts on an autumn afternoon, we do invite you to to sound off uh, through your social media platform of choice, and we will do our best to respond and and keep the conversation going. Yeah, there is kind of a a bittersweet aspect. I remember when I blogged about it for my Criterion Reflections column, just recognizing as I was going through my chronological journey that this was the end of Ozu, and it really was the end of an era. You know, the so-called Big Three, of course, Mizuguchi passed on in the mid-50s after uh, Street of Shame, as it's uh, translated in, in in into English. Ozu, you know, you, you sort of think about where his departure sort of left Japanese cinema. So many kind of radical and challenging things were just in the process of being unleashed. I mean, certainly the the Sun Tribe films and some of the youth-oriented stuff, uh, Yajiro Ishihara and some of the, you know, Nikatsu Noir films and things of that sort were starting to break the mold a little bit. And Ozu was probably, in the eyes of many, beginning to feel a little old-fashioned and dated and of a, of a past generation. But then, of course, when he died, that really did wrap things up. Um, you know, it would have been still fascinating to see how Ozu might have responded or interacted with uh, the more radical currents of early sixties Japanese cinema. But that's a story we can only speculate about, and and uh, we've got to accept the reality of of time's passage and the the history and the and the unchangeability of uh, of these key events of life. So, I hope you've all listened, enjoyed listening to our uh, fairly lengthy ruminations on these last films of Ozu's over the course of the Eclipse Viewer episodes and and now this one. Uh, Scott, Matt, Trevor, I really appreciate you guys joining me for the conversation and kind of completing this journey. Uh, Let's just kind of go around and and drop little connections, uh, anything anybody wants to promote. Trevor, I'll kind of start with you. Why don't you kind of tell us what you're up to, how people can find you, and anything else you want to self-promote at the moment.
3: He actually messaged on Slack. He had to duck out.
0: Oh, okay. Well, okay. Well, <laughs> folks, you know where to find Trevor, and uh, he and I will be working together, uh, not maybe as steadily with the Eclipse Hero, but he's going to be a, one of my guests on the upcoming Criterion Reflections podcast that will be my main jam once I get this thing out of the way. Uh, Matt, let's uh, introduce yourself, promote whatever you want to do. I know you got the Albums project going there? What else? oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah.
2: I guess I'll mention that. I uh, on Twitter, I'm uh, tweeting out uh, the top twenty five, uh, my top top twenty five anyway, albums of every year going back to 1960. I'm moving forwards, so I'm. Uh, I just tweeted out 1997. Uh, so if you're looking for new music or uh, if you want to uh, argue with me about my terrible taste, please come find me on Twitter. I'm uh, Matthew Eg. <laughs> uh- uh, on Twitter and and Letterboxd as well, and uh, that's a, Letterboxd is a great place to talk Ozu with me. I try to watch at least uh, one Ozu movie every month or so. So
0: cool. I'll I'll look you up on that and maybe engage. But yeah, I feel like I'm getting to know you a lot better just through your musical choices, and you've actually inspired a few little explorations because oh, there's some there's some predictability or so yeah I kind of figured that's where you'd go but then there's some where in the world did that come from so it's it's a pretty fun little project you got going there uh I'll try not to argue with you too much, <laughs> well I,
2: I you know I think uh, each each pocket of my uh sort of friend connections online or in in real life are learning different things about me like uh, you know some people had no idea I was into country music and I mean, I guess everybody knows I'm into hip hop, but um, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's still some surprises to be found in, you know, what, what amounts to over a thousand records, uh, overall. So,
0: yeah, pretty, pretty cool little thing you got going there. Scott, what you got going on?
3: Um, what do I have going on? I'm, I just wrote about, uh, the recently departed, sadly departed Jerry Lewis, uh, for Battleship Pretension. Uh, there's that article for the American cinema on Ozu that we've talked about, and I'm gonna do a, a podcast, an episode of uh, Peter the Cinophiliacs podcast next week, talking about uh, the about to conclude Twin Peaks. Oh,
0: cool! So yeah, you again, you, you mentioned the Flixwise episode that'll probably yeah, be that's in right, the queue somewhere in the weeks ahead. So very, very fun. Well, folks, thank you again for listening in. Find us, uh, chat with us, and uh, we'll be back with another Criterion Cast main episode sometime in the weeks ahead. Not sure when or what. But we'll be back and we'll talk to you then. Thanks and
1: bye-bye. Yeah, <sighs> Kabelno.